morning, church. You know I'm going to talk about you. I'm so happy you're here. I missed you so much. Yeah. Yeah. I broke the pulpit, by the way. I'm going to just get that out the way right now. I was carrying it. I don't know, man. The thing broke. and So I got this raggedy mic stand up here. Man. I told you I was going to tell them. Man, well... Good morning again. <laughs> we getting used to it. Uh, my name is Justin. If we haven't met before, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here uh, to be sent out as the planting pastor of a new autonomous church plant about 15 minutes uh, west of here called New City Fellowship. And you've heard me introduce myself these past few weeks in this way. And so, you know, I want to leave space that if uh, you're curious, as you've heard me kind of say this over and over and over again, uh, if, if, if you're curious to know what's Crosspoint's relationship to this thing, what, what is this thing doing? Maybe, maybe you're feeling compelled yourself to, to join this launch team for a season or for a time, and you're worrying, uh, wondering what that looks like. Man, I'm going to be in the back at the connections table after service, and I'd love to talk more with you about that. But let's jump right into our text this morning. You ready to study your Bibles? Yes. Me too. Why don't you meet me in the book of Exodus chapter 19? Exodus chapter 19. As we conclude finally this beautiful series we've been in all summer uh, called Peaks and Valleys, we're going to visit uh, one of, if not the most important mountaintop in the Old Testament, Mount Sinai. And as you know, through the last 12 weeks of this series, we've, we've had a diverse preaching experience. Some of our sermons being more thematic in their approach. My time with you has been looking at literal peaks and valleys in the text and gleaning from those moments what God's word would be uh, and then applying that uh, uh, to our you know, season of valley or uh, peak. And so uh, that's what we're going to do today. Our text today is a significant moment in the life of God's people that carries with it deep, deep, rich application for us. God has just a little bit of context. God has just brought the Hebrew people out from under the foot of Egypt for 400 years. They were enslaved to Egypt. And this morning we find them, as we read our text, free, free with the hopes of finally heading to the promised land. But first, God would take them somewhere else to communicate something to them and by extension us this morning, something uh, 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 beautifully significant. Something I believe the whole narrative of scripture is singing to us. And I'm going to say it like this, this is the big idea for today. Our God pursues his people for the purpose of having a personal and intimate relationship with him. Our God pursues us to have a personal and intimate relationship with him. 
In that sentence, you'll find that there is no greater thing, no more important thing than this. God with us. And what I want to do this morning is show you that the promises made on Mount Sinai are the same sweet and beautiful promises God has made to you and I today. That's the same grace we read about here in the Old Testament is the same grace we are experiencing here today. I want to show you that the whole Bible sings to us this truth. And so the title for our time this morning is The God of All Grace. And this message to Israel contains within it three things I want to highlight, three uh, aspects of God's grace to his people, his redemption, his requirements, and his reward. Redemption, requirement, reward. Each of these things are a grace he lavishes upon Israel and now on us as we go through this life. So if you are able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? And then I want to invite you to pray for me as I pray for you. So as together we can hear what thus says the Lord. Exodus chapter 19, starting in verse one. It reads like this. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is God's word. Let's pray. Mighty God, we come to you this morning with souls that hunger and thirst. We come this morning leaving whatever season of life we are in, some of us in the valley, some of us on the mountain. But we come this morning to your house to hear from you. We come looking for everlasting water, for bread that gives life, only which you provide. Give us ears to hear this morning, eyes to see you this morning, hearts softened by the goodness, the blessedness of your truth. And would you gift me, the preacher, with clarity of speech and thought, and would you gift the congregation with attentiveness and grace for my errors? In Christ Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. 
I got three kids. Three beautiful, handsome young men. It's because of them they're not here today. Because of themselves, I guess. Our oldest just had a birthday party yesterday. And I realized that I could get sunburnt. I didn't know I could do that. <clears throat> I usually just get darker, but no, today the sun was like red. That's your shade. And uh, we went to the beach yesterday, so they're partied out. So they're, they're home with mama watching online. But each one of them, y'all, and y'all have loved them well, and I thank you for that. Some of y'all have gotten to know them real well. As you've gotten to know them, you'll know very quickly that all three of my kids are not the same person. Like, they are very different human beings. Each one has their own value, their own attribute that, that, that they value most. I'll put it to you like this. My oldest, who just turned nine yesterday, so when you see him next week, you know, nine punches. Uh, yeah, hit him. Um, he cares very deeply about truth. Uh, he, he cares very deeply about righteousness, what is right and what is wrong. He has a very like strong moral compass, except when it's him. Um, he's not here. And um, my youngest, he's still coming into his own personality, right? He cares very deeply about his joy. He's very particular about the things that make him happy, right? Food is a big one, right? Oftentimes he won't eat his dinner in exchange for my body needs a snack, right? Very particular about what makes him happy and what he wants. My middle one is the one I want to talk to you about. He is uh, all about love. Very, very affectionate, very, very caring. When someone from the family is gone too long, he is visibly uncomfortable. And when they return, he is visibly at peace. Okay? One night, there's a story I want to share with you. It goes like this. One night, my wife and I were night owls, so we're like staying up late watching Martin or something. And we hear in the, in the monitor crying in their room. So I go in there and Grayson is sitting up in his bed and he's weeping. And I come in there and I give him a hug and I say, hey, man, what's wrong? Like, what's, what's going on? What happened? And he's like, I had a nightmare. And I'm like, oh, OK. Give him a hug again. And I'm just like, all right, tell me. Tell me what happened. And he's like, I don't want to talk about it. And I'm like, OK, take a second. Get yourself together. We have to talk about it. We don't run from fear. We handle it together and we trust God with what we can't see. So he takes a second because he cries, cries. You know what I'm saying? There's like manipulation crying. You know, parents, you know what I'm talking about. There's manipulative crying and then there's like crying, crying. You know, he's crying, crying. And uh, he takes his second and he goes, I had a dream that someone took me away. Like he was kidnapped, right? And he goes, and the only thing... I felt was scared that I'll never see my family again. <laughs> so I made a promise to him that night. I said, hey, no matter what happens in this life, you will always be a part of this family. Always. I will always be your father. You will always be Justin and Adriana's son. You will always be Jace and Kean's brother. You'll always be Piper's owner. That no matter what happens in this life, I am yours and you are mine. What happened in that room 
was something DNA cannot do. You understand what I'm saying? There was a promise between two people that no matter what this life brings, whether he's here on this earth or I'm here on this earth, there's nothing that can change the truth that he is mine and I am his. We made a covenant, a promise to always be together in family. Now, I know that's a long story, and I'm sorry for that, but I share this with you because throughout the Bible, God continually does the same exact thing with his children. He makes a covenant with them, a promise to them that he will be theirs and they will be his. And for our text this morning, the Hebrew people have just come out of a nightmare. 400 years. They were enslaved to Egypt for 400 years. The promise that God gave Abraham that was confirmed in Isaac, that was again confirmed in Jacob, seemed to be out of reach. Nothing but false hope to imagine. But then God does what he always does best. He chooses the unlikely. He calls Moses. A a stuttering Hebrew-born child that was raised by royal Egyptian family who's now on the run from that Egyptian family because he murdered an Egyptian man who was beating a Hebrew slave. And he calls Moses up to a mountain and meets with Moses and tells him, you're going to be the vessel by which I bring my people out of Egypt. He says to him, I will be with you, and this is how you know it. After you bring them out of Egypt, come back to me on this mountain. God orchestrates Moses' step. He carefully uh, uh, lays out the path by which Moses will lead. God, through Moses, leads Israel out of Egypt. But family, put yourself in the position of Israel for a second. They're free, finally free. Something their great-grandparents hoped they would see, something their grandparents, something their parents hoped to see, freedom. Their first thought must have been promised land. Promised land, right? This is what's been keeping us faithful for 400 years. We're thinking about what God told Abraham, what he told Isaac, what he told Jacob. The place that God has set aside for us, that's where we're going, right? But our text points out to us in verse 1 and 2 that Israel did not go to the promised land. Instead, they went to Sinai. For three months, they traveled to Sinai. God did not take them closer to the promised land. He took them further away. And this isn't my first point, but it's worth noting that forward progress isn't always the progress you need to make. We need to know that sometimes 
detours are divine. If you're familiar with the wilderness story, you know that there is a straight shot from Egypt to Israel. It's a two, maybe three week journey. The Lord took them three months south, not northeast, south. I mean, think about it. You've probably seen pictures of Israel or you've probably been there yourself. But think about how like Israel was a lush place. There's vegetation. It's beautiful. It's on the water. Land is fertile. And where God took them to was the desert. Google Maps Sinai. It's not I mean, it's pretty, but it's not like I would live there. It's literally like dirt and the mountains don't even look like mountains. They look like overgrown rocks. This is not what they dreamed of. And so here they are in the wilderness of Sinai and they go and they make camp at the foot of the mountain and Moses goes to the top of the mountain to speak with God alone. It's the fulfillment of the burning bush promise. I'll take you out of Egypt and you will come to worship me here. So Moses goes up and God tells Moses, this is what I want you to tell my people. And this is the verses we're going to camp out in, starting in verse four. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you should speak to the people of Israel. In other words, God says to the Israelites, and by extension, us this morning, trust me, I know where I'm taking you. Trust me, I know where you need to go. Notice, family, that God has said this. While they've moved further away from that place, not closer. They're supposed to go to the land of milk and honey. And no, they're somewhere worse than Egypt. And that's where God meets them to talk to them about his grace. I have three things, as I said, and then I'll be in my seat. The first thing we see in these couple of verses is the redemption of God. I want you to know, family, that redemption language is intimate language. I mean, if you just look at the words of God and how they're carefully constructed, my people, your God, this is, this is the language of intimacy. God is reminding them of the same promise he made to Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham. I want an intimate relationship with you where I am your God and you are my people. In other words, this morning, family, God wants to remind you that you are in an intimate relationship with him as you've already experienced grace and you will experience future grace to come. Look at verse four. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. God says, you have experienced this. You've experienced me crushing your enemies putting you on eagle's wings and bringing you to me. God is reminding them of what he's done for them. This is a summary of salvation. This is a summary of not only the Hebrew redemption, but yours and mine as well. 
And there's three components in these words. The first, what he did to the Egyptians. You've seen Prince of Egypt. You ever seen Prince of Egypt? No. Listen, I watched Prince of Egypt recently the other day. The last time I saw it was when, I, when it came out. I was a kid kid. I was young. And I watched it with my kids today. That opening scene, deliver us to the prom. I was like, <laughs> that junk had me weeping. But, but you, you know what happens. If you don't, I'll tell you. God made Pharaoh's gods look silly. He humiliated them one by one. He brought the plagues on them and then finally crashed Pharaoh's army into the sea. Now this shows us the lengths of which God will go gather his children. The lengths at which he will go to get you. There is no earthly power or ruler or magician or shroud of darkness that he cannot overcome to rescue his children from bondage and death. There is nothing in this world that can stop his desire to call his people, rescue them from their nightmares and embrace them into eternity. In this, it shows us that God initiates contact with us. He is the one who finds us and rescues us and saves us from sin and death to himself against our volition. What he did to Israel, he's done for you. Do me a favor and open Ephesians 1 and keep your finger on Ephesians. We're going to go back there later, but Ephesians 1, starting in verse 3, reads like this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us Paul would teach us here that God initiates contact with his people in love he chose us before was was in love he planned your redemption in love he lavished upon you grace on top of grace in love he's redeemed you second thing God says to Israel next I mounted you up on eagles wings the imagery God uses here is deeply rich eagles if you've ever seen them in the wild or watched a bunch of nature documentaries like I do are beautiful they're also fierce they're hunters fiercely attacking whatever to defend their own the eagle attacks to defend like God did in Egypt for his children but the eagle is also a literary device for for nurture and safety and rescuing. J.R.R. Tolkien often uses eagles 
as a symbol of rescue. I don't know if you've read it or maybe seen the movies, but in The Hobbit, the eagles show up twice to rescue the good guys. But it's the last one that's really noticeable. Our protagonists of the story are surrounded by the enemy. It looks like all hope is lost. Defeat is looming. Despair is the only reasonable answer. And then through the distance, someone says the eagles. The eagles are coming. And sure enough, the eagles do come and fight the enemy for our protagonists and deliver them to safety. The eagles are coming, they said. Moses later writes a worship song to God in Deuteronomy 32. And this song is all about God being like an eagle who cares for its young. How the eaglets are powerless and helpless, but the mother shields and cares for them. How we are his treasure and the apple of his eye that even though he stirs up our nests so that we could go and fly, should trouble come to us, the eagle swoops down to save us. Family, this is the exact thing that God did to Israel in Egypt and will do for them for the next 40 years as they wander the wilderness. Grace experienced and grace to come. And I want to tell you today that this is the same grace you have experienced in your salvation and grace you will experience as you travel every valley going through all that life has laid out for you and as you're journeying, sojourning as an exile, reaching the promised land, the new Jerusalem, the day of the Lord, God will provide grace on top of grace throughout the way. God mounts us up on eagle's wings. Your salvation and mine had nothing to do of our effort and attractiveness, our salvation is sheer grace. The work of another on our behalf, the eagles. The eagles are coming, he says. The last part of redemption is that God brings us to himself. The exodus is not only about deliverance from Egypt, but about bringing them to himself on Sinai. This this, this desert trip, this, this three months detour is not an accident. No, it was the intention always to come to God after the freedom of Egypt. When God saves us, he does so to bring us to himself. You are saved by God, to God, and for God. Grace on top of grace. You are saved by a God who loves you. Saved to a God who protects you and keeps you. And saved for his glory to be used to tell others. Israel was saved from Egypt. Taken to Mount Sinai to be invited to live their lives intimately and personally with God. And so are we. Saved from the bondage of sin to be invited to have a personal and intimate relationship with him. But this means, church, that God has requirements. He requires that we live a particular way so that we may be truly happy and wonderfully whole. 
so that in our happiness and wholeness, others might see this testimony of God's grace and want some of that too. Now that we have redemption by his action, we are called to grateful obedience in his requirements. Look at verse five. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. What God has done for us in the past is the basis for what he expects from us today. Salvation demands worship. God's action on our behalf requires worshipful obedience. Well, I know we don't like the works talk. But note this, family. God does not say, obey me and I will save you. The Ten Commandments and the laws about sacrifice were not given to Israel before they left Egypt. No, it's now in Exodus 20 that the Ten Commandments are introduced. And it's in the very next book where he gets the law of the sacrifices. Notice, it's not obedience, then deliverance. No, 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 no. It's, I saved you, now obey me. This too is beautiful, beautiful grace. God's requirements to us are opportunities to be participants in the work of his saving grace to the world. If it was requirement, then redemption, the preacher would preach, obey so that God can save you. But that is not the song the gospel sings. Oh, the gospel says, I'm accepted because of my deliverance, therefore I will obey. The gospel says God has saved me because he loves me and he's accepted me with all my dirty rags, with all my unrighteousness, with all my mess ups and the people that I've hurt along the way. God still accepts me just as I am because it's not my messed up work that he sees. It's the perfect work of his son, Jesus Christ, in my place. So now I will live as Jesus lived, not to get more blessings, but to be drawn closer and closer to the one who treasures me. If you live today, family, in the full realization of this truth, you will find that love, joy, and gratitude are always available to you as motivation to receive more of God's presence. If you're here today, but you feel the opposite, that you don't have access to love, that you don't have access to joy or gratitude. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's not what you say. Maybe you say, you know what? I am being obedient. I'm doing all the things I should do. But life is still chaos and crazy. Either of those two scenarios, if either of those two scenarios are true in you, then you might actually be believing these things backwards. See, in either scenario, the person's obedience is conditional. It's predicated on what they expect back from God out of life. But our text tells us that it is God who has the expectations for his elect. The history of the Exodus 
teaches us the function of obedience in this life. First, God rescues, then he teaches us how to live for his glory. If personal obedience, if God's requirement came first, then we would never be saved. Ever. Despair would be a reasonable response for us because it is our nature to fall. But, I mean, there's a problem we still feel, right? Even in this good news, there's still a tension we feel because God demands nothing less than perfection. He says in verse 5, obey my voice, keep my commands. That's language of completion. The Hebrew language there is that of completion, of, of, of carrying out in its totality. There, there's an issue here that we feel. But, but, but let's not pretend we don't understand this. My wife and I were real smart. We trained our kids to have morning chores so that we could get 30 minutes extra of sleep. <clears throat> Confession, bad for the reputation, good for the soul. And so I've laid out specific requirements I expect my children to do when I wake up in the morning. And if they're not done completely, there's a consequence. You know this, right? Maybe not so you can sleep an extra 30 minutes. I'll take that one. But you understand what it is to ask your children to do something and expect that it be done, right? So the tension here is that God's standards are higher than ours. Honestly, God's standards are too high for us to reach. I mean, in Exodus 20, God's going to give them 10 commandments, right? The, the, the commands that he's talking about here in 19, he delivers in, in, in chapter 20. And you'll find that if you read through the Exodus story, that Israel will fail this over and over and over and over. And so in the very next book, in Leviticus, God will give them a sacrificial system to atone for their mess-ups. Don't you see what I'm saying to you? God meets all the problems of man with grace. Our God is a God of grace. He saves his people first, then he calls them to obey his law, and then when we fall short, he provides the means of atonement, a way for his people to be right before him. Do you know where I'm going with this? God's unconditional covenant is upheld not by us, but by the perfect sacrifice of Christ. And what, made, and what made Christ the perfect sacrifice for us is that he kept every single condition that God requires. And so now we live keeping the covenant because Christ has satisfied both its conditions and taken on the judgment that comes from not keeping it. The point is this. Y'all not excited with me, but the point is this. God saves us in Christ before he calls us to live for Christ. Go, go back to Ephesians chapter 2. And look at verse 4. The greatest but in the Bible. Some of y'all get that tomorrow. 
but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raises us up with him and seats us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God had prepared beforehand. Doesn't that sound like Exodus 19, 4 and 5? Look at that construction of wording. Notice, because we get, all, we get weird about works. But notice Paul's language. You can't work toward your salvation. You, you've been saved by grace. God rescues. His redemption is his own. Nothing you do on your own. But there is a word of works here for Paul. He says, your good works don't save you. However, you have been saved for good works. In other words, if we look back at Israel, Israel couldn't do nothing about leaving Egypt. God had to do it for them. But now that they're out of Egypt, God says, I have a life planned out for you that will truly make you happy because it will draw you closer to me. And family, that is true of us this morning. You cannot save yourself. You cannot do anything to get yourself out of Egypt, out of the deadness of your own sin. But God delivers you and now requires you to walk faithfully with him in such a way that draws you closer to him. It's the language of intimacy. My final point, because I'll, I'll just I'll get out of the works thing for you. When you read the scriptures and you come into regular Bible reading, okay, there's always a way God does a command. It's the same all the time. God always leaves a command and he follows it up with a beautiful promise. Most notably is the Great Commission in Matthew 28, right? Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That is your job and my job. Right. But there's a promise, right? What does he say? And behold, I will be with you always. The covenant that God makes with his people here in Exodus 19 is the same. It comes with three promises, three blessings that are experienced and not yet experienced by God's people. The reward is there for you, but it is through obedience that you will understand what exactly the depth of it is. The blessings start in verse five, at the end of verse five. And you shall be my treasured possession among all my peoples, for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He says treasure, kingdom of priests, holy nation. 
Treasure, what, is it, what, what does that mean when he says you'll be my treasure? The language here is a language of kingship. Treasure here refers to the personal wealth of the king. The king's own possession. Not, not, not something that was received because of the product of his kingship. It's not like a crown or a scepter or even spoils of war. All of those things leave when the king leaves. What, what, what this is talking about is something deeply intimate to the king. It's his own possession. The, the, these, these treasures were often stored in the king's own personal bedroom. They were items that he wanted to see as soon as he woke up and wanted to be the last thing he sees before he goes to bed. He wanted to wake up to them. And he wanted to see them before he rested. This is a high title bestowed on God's people. But see, it's there for you, and it's also not yet realized. What do I mean? God always treasured Israel. He always, they were already his jewel, but now God says, your obedience now allows you to fully understand this because in your obedience, we treasure each other. Mm. Let me help you out. I treasure my wife. I love my wife already, right now. I treasured her before we were married. But her yes to me and her living faithfully to me has allowed her to experience the full reality of being treasured by me. Married people, you, you, you know what I'm talking about. You, you notice when you treasure someone and then they do something for you, Oh, how it draws you closer to each other. When you love someone, you, you try to discover all that pleases them, all that delights them, and you do it, you surprise them, you, 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 you do what, what they love, what they want, out of grateful surrender because you love this person. You want to treasure your treasure. You want to be treasured by your treasure. This is the language that God speaks over you in this text. Then he says, I'm going to make you a holy nation. I'll do nation first and then I'll come back around to priests. God's special people have a special purpose. A holy nation means that what God has in plan for you is to be a part of a different kind of human society. The nation here is the language of, of allegiance to culture and ethnicity. God is saying one of the blessings for you is that I'm going to make you into something else entirely. You will be different and set apart. See, family, every culture, every race, every ethnic identity since has the image of God placed in them. Since created by God has parts of himself. This is why diversity is a beautiful thing. Because we get the semblances of God's grace in other peoples who are not like us. But because no one culture or ethnic group or, or race has within it the whole of moral goodness, each culture, each, each ethnic expression and race, Paul says, has depravities within them. 
So we will experience the true and good nature of God more deeply the more diverse our social circles become. The nation of God contains within it every earthly nation, tongue, and creed. It is a diverse selection of people coming together to become one new national identity. It's a nation where each individual has been humbled to the dirt by the gospel with the knowledge of their destructive and divisive power of sin. But it is also a nation that is affirmed to the heavens by the gospel because it tells you that you are a child of God. Therefore, no condemnation can come upon you. When the gospel does that, a beautiful community is born. A community that embraces intimacy and transparency with one another. A community that embraces candor and trust with one another. But that's not all. It's not just the relationship that are formed. Holiness also means that money, sex, and power are put in their rightful perspectives in the hearts of God's people. This community, this holy nation, preaches to the world a powerful message of freedom from the things that this world would otherwise see to have us enslaved to. We are set apart to be in contrast to the world set apart from operating in its power dynamics and subjugations this community preaches a message of hope and belonging when we have an intimate relationship with Jesus soaking in the fullness of his grace when we come to Jesus the old dies and the new lives we are not the same finally a kingdom of priests priests are mediators they, they bring people on the outside, inside. And this is strong language for Israel at the time because every surrounding culture and nation has a very religious bend. And they built these great pyramids, these, these, these things uh, uh, shaped like pyramids, shaped like mountains called ziggurats. And these mountains were made to worship their gods. In every other nation and religion, the people have to climb up to their god have to make it to the top. It's Israel's religion only where God comes down to bring his people up. Oh, when he makes his people, his priests, his representations to the world, and they don't stay at the mountaintop, but they come down into the valley, continuing to live in worshipful obedience to a God who brought them out of death and into light and life of Christ. We are the priesthood of all believers. I'll finish with this. In Christ. God in Christ secured your redemption, delivered you from the bondage of sin through the perfect law keeping of Christ who kept the law all the way to death. When he died an atonement on, as an atonement on your behalf, he was resurrected as our treasure as our priest mediating on our behalf, as our holiness in, God's, uh, in our place before God, calling us to now work out our salvation in obedience to, the, to God's word so that we can treasure our treasure, so that we can be treasured by our treasure. Now that holiness is expressed by his nation, 
The high priest of Christ, our mediator, makes us into mediators, pointing the world. We now point to the world, to the great mediator, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords. In Christ, we have redemption. In Christ, God finds his requirements satisfied. In Christ, we have been blessed with every blessing on heaven and on earth. And should the valleys of life ever tempt you to believe differently than what God speaks to you in Exodus 19, then let the words of the Lord through the psalmist comfort you on the way out this place. Psalm 91 verse 14, these are God's words to you because he holds fast to me in love. I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Stand with me and worship. <laughs> 